Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of the Thinking About Therapy podcast. This podcast series is for people who are thinking about either developing their own psychological formulation or if you're interested in just listening in to hear what the first few sessions of therapy would be like with myself. It's not therapy itself, so just a caution is warranted. But um, if you're interested in developing your own psychological formulation, then grab yourself a pen and paper and maybe tune into episode one and hopefully um, you find the, the series useful. The focus of today's episode, uh, we're on the third of five episodes and it's the third P of five P's, which is precipitating factors. Precipitating factors refer to triggers or things that happen just before, things that precipitate difficulties or problems emerging. So what kind of pushes your buttons in the moment? What causes you difficulties or what is the first point at which problems start to begin? That can be day to day in the moment or it can be at this period of time in your life with difficulties deteriorated significantly or you had a, a tough time of it. So if you are developing your own psychological formulation alongside me, then in episode one, we would have had developed a nice comprehensive problem list. Episode two, we talked a little bit about your life story and where your difficulties or problems have potentially emerged from, ideas or theories regarding that. And today it's talking a little bit more about problems in the moment and triggers that impact on those problems or difficulties emerging. Okay, so I don't know how useful it is for us to have this image of me and you having therapy together in real life, but if this was therapy session three or four, I'd be coming down to collect you from the waiting room. You'd know what to expect today because we would have talked about it last week in terms of a plan of action. But when we sit together, we would make a bit of an agenda. We talk about precipitating factors and what they are and with a plan to actually come up with a list of triggers or difficulties in the moment that contribute towards problems emerging. So as with previous sessions, I try my best to stay out of it as much as possible. I'll ask you a nice open question and invite you to to write down or to describe a a list of, of triggers or things that contribute towards difficulties emerging in the moment. A lot of people can just write a list of triggers or talk about a list of triggers quite easily but then the rest of us maybe find it a little bit more difficult to to think about what happens. I think that's partly related to we can tend to get into habits as humans and distress is no different. Sometimes things can get a bit automated and just happen before we even notice or realise. So the idea with this session is for us to just take a little bit of a step back, maintain a stance of curious uncertainty and just um, come up with a as comprehensive a list of triggers as possible. So for those of you comfortable in developing your own formulation, have a go now and see if you can come up with as many triggers as possible. Things that push your buttons in the moment or contribute towards problems emerging. Things that that you find difficult or stressful, whether that's interactions and things that happen, obvious stuff and less obvious stuff. You think about your day-to-day experiences, what happens in your day-to-day life that contributes towards problems emerging? What's that moment at which things start to become obvious as a problem? In addition to thinking about your day-to-day life, think about your past, 
period in your life when problems seemed to come to the fore a little bit more? What was happening around that time? Was there any significant triggers in the form of, of difficult life events or experiences that you had to go through? Just make a note of them. Same as previously, this is the early stages of therapy with myself. So just like if we were in the therapy room together, um, I would say to you just to focus a little bit more on listing triggers rather than going into lots of detail or finding yourself drawn towards thinking about them lots and lots at this early stage. The idea is that we get a bit of a sketch or an outline of your formulation and then you can come back to it and go into more detail later on. So for those of us who need a little bit more support to think through triggers a little bit, maybe helpful just to think or make a note of some of the key points that were taking place in the run-up to you becoming either unwell or starting to experience distress more often. What was happening around this time for you? Was there anything going on in relation to day-to-day -day life that either quickly or slowly contributed towards things getting worse? Any significant life events or traumatic experiences? What about challenges in relation to your social life or interactions with other people? What about your internal world? Any Anything that contributes towards making a bad day even worse or a good day bad? You notice from previous episodes that when thinking about problems or difficulties, I tend to cluster things around how we interact or relate with ourselves, how we interact or relate with other people in the world around us, and day-to-day -day life and experiences. Again, if you think of those three different areas, potentially in the context of, of triggers that may emerge, some of them can be internally generated, a thought or an image or a feeling that comes to awareness within, or an interaction, comments, difficulties related to interactions with other people, or trying to avoid interactions with other people. And then things in your day-to-day -day life that contribute towards problems emerging. I know I've mentioned curious uncertainty already, but it, it is an important one here. And just to think, you know, once in a while I talk with people and they talk about significant experiences that for most of us would definitely fall into the category of being a trigger for problems emerging. But sometimes people aren't sure, aren't confident that it might have been that big a trigger, a big important part of their life. And what I say to people is just to, if you're not sure if it's a, a trigger or significant important part of your life or your experience of problems, then just put it down anyway. We can always take it off the list later. So make a record of your list of triggers as best you can. We'll be able to use this list in future to identify interactions or internal mental states or physical sensations or moments when your risk of becoming sad or annoyed or fearful or distressed increases. If we can identify triggers to problems, then it takes us one step closer to being able to figure out ways to support you in the moment with those problems and difficulties. Then I encourage you to think more about triggers that influence you once you're already initially triggered. So once you have a, had an interaction or an experience that causes you to start to feel uncomfortable or start to experience problems, are there any other things then that can happen in those moments that make a bad situation worse? So by jotting all of these down, I'm hoping that at this point you'll have a, a nice comprehensive list of more and less obvious or subtle triggers and this will be really helpful to think about later on when we pull your whole formulation together. 
Now that we've got a comprehensive list of triggers, we'll sometimes dig a little bit deeper to see if we can find any more. And sometimes triggers can be, you know, in relation to thoughts or feelings or body sensations or, or things that we actually do that contribute towards problems either emerging or continuing. So it's often at this stage in therapy that I break out the hot cross buns. Now don't get too excited if you are a fan of tasty hot cross buns. It's not the, the buns themselves, but rather uh, the term we use to describe uh, formulating in the moment with regards to someone's thoughts, feelings and behaviours. So assuming my plans to add a link of relevant paperwork comes to fruition, there should be a sheet containing a hot cross bun template that you can look at or even use if you want to yourself. You can design one yourself, it's not difficult. It's just four points on a cross with a big bubble on in each of the four areas. One at the top signifying thoughts on either side. One bubble is, is feelings or emotions. Then the other bubble on the other side is uh, feelings as in physical sensations. And then the bubble at the bottom is behaviours or actions we take. I use hot cross buns to go into more depth, more analysis of incidents that occur. To find out more about what thoughts you had during an incident, how you felt both in terms of emotions or the often forgotten but very important physical sensations or feelings that take place in the body. And then crucially what you did or how you behaved in certain situations or instances. Essentially the hot cross bun is all about thoughts, feelings and behaviours. So by drawing out a recent stressful incident, it can be a useful way to help shine a light on triggers or the mechanics of how situations can deteriorate or affect us differently on different days. So just for fun, let's try giving one a go now. Think up a recent incident or situation that could have gone better or contributed towards you having a bit of a tough time. If you use the hot cross bun template I've added or just draw those bubbles yourself, then you can make a note of the thoughts, feelings, behaviours and physical sensations that were happening for you around this time. So for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to give you a pretty rubbish example from my own life that happened last week. So in the top corner, I've written the incident, which is my six-year-old not reading before bedtime. So just to give you some context, I have a routine where I get my little one to read a couple of pages of his book as just before he's ready for bed. And then I read him a chapter in exchange and then it's off to bed for him. So that sounds nice and smooth, but actually it can be uh, pretty challenging at times. OK, so, so my little one on this occasion was a bundle of noisy energy. And rather than finding his antics cute and cuddly, I found myself getting really annoyed and impatient. So I've decided to draw this one out just to demonstrate what a bad parent I am. Okay, so if you've got your, your piece of paper in front of you, or you've developed one, so in the top corner of the page, I just write the instant. And I've, I've written in mind bedtime banter. Okay, in the thoughts bubble, I've written, we need to do this reading. This has taken ages. Hurry up. I've got loads to do tonight and haven't got time for this. You're being a little pain. So these are thoughts in my head, by the way. I didn't say them out loud, I don't think. Uh, do what you're told. The feelings or emotions at the time were happy at the start, then irritation and impatience. After a few more moments of thinking, I concluded that there could be a little deeply disguised anxiety hidden under the surface there. 
I'd had a conversation with my wife the day before about the difference between her two kids' reading ability and the implications being, or the implications I took from it, was that I need to up my game on the, the parenting stakes and get a bit better at teaching my youngest how to read. So for someone who doesn't even get phonics consistently correct, it's a bit of a bit of an ask. So I added anxiety and I also went back to the thoughts and I added, I'm a failure. Now, I can't remember specifically saying to myself or hearing my thoughts telling me that I'm a failure. But after decades of carrying around a defectiveness shame schema or set of beliefs related to that sort of thing, then you can be fairly guaranteed that thoughts like that were swimming around in my adaptive unconscious mind at the time. I use this idea of adaptive unconscious thinking a lot during these hot cross buns because many of us haven't really got time to think or remember thinking during these hot interactions. So allowing us ourselves a bit of bit of scope to remain curious and uncertain and just because we can't necessarily put our finger right on the words or the thoughts that came to mind at the time, if we kind of allow the fact that a lot of our thinking goes on just under the surface outside of our awareness, then it gives us permission to play around a little bit more with potential thoughts or themes that were happening at the time. So now onto the physical sensations bubble in my uh, hot cross bun. I don't really remember very well what was happening in my body at the time. I know I was tired and lacking in energy, so I popped that in the box. I was on edge. I could feel myself going a bit red, feeling prime for fight or flight type reactions. Uh, I was kind of heading towards the polar opposite of calm at the time. So these physical sensations resulted in me going back to the emotions bubble on my hot cross bun because I noticed I, I just put irritation. But actually, I think anger is a fair, fair summary of an emotion that I was feeling at the time. So onto the behaviour section to make a note there of what I actually did or the actions I took. So initially, when I was happy and content and I was playful and chatty, uh, it was all good dad territory stuff. As my impatience grew, I stopped being fun and chatty and responded to my kid's lack of compliance with what was likely to be perceived by him as impatience and daddy is no longer fun in any way, shape or form territory stuff. This resulted in my little one trying in his own way to get the fun started again. At this point, as I realised my kid was just trying to continue the fun time that daddy had started, it reminded me that I was not thinking about this at the time and because it was quite the opposite. So I pop back to the thoughts section and I add, he's taking the piss and doing this on purpose just to press my buttons, which again is another fairly accurate thought that was probably floating around at the time. Other things I did was I veered away from our usual routine, so I broke our usual routine. I was chasing him around to do things and I even threatened him with not getting his story rather than being more patient. So yes, I'm threatening a six-year-old, but in my defence, it did feel like he was bullying me at the time. Oh, it's not much of a defence, is it? So then we struggled for another one or two minutes. That felt to me like about two hours. We had a thoroughly unsatisfying reading session where I just wanted to get it over with. So I, I helped him to the point of nearly reading the pages for him. Then I suppose the add-on from that is that I felt even crapper than usual in terms of teaching him to read. So at this point, when I was jotting this down in the, the behaviour bubble of the hot cross bun, I returned back up to the thoughts section and I added, I am a bad parent, which is probably a good summary of, of some of the thoughts that were floating about in my mind at the time. 
So just to recap on my example, in the hope that this helps you to try and have a go at a hot cross bun for yourself, pick in a recent incident. In my case, it was the bedtime banter, where it moved on badly from me having fun with my child to me being a bit of an asshole and, and disturbing the usual routine and ended up having not a very productive or fruitful experience. So recap on the thoughts. We need to do this reading. This has taken ages. Hurry up. I've got lots of work to do. I haven't got time for this. You're being a little pain on purpose. He's taking the piss and doing this on purpose just to press my buttons. Do what you're told. I'm a bad parent. I'm a failure. So there were the thoughts. Feelings. Happy at the start when I was playing around. Everything was all hunky-dory. Anxiety. That was well disguised, but it was lurking in there somewhere. Irritation. Impatience. Anger. And a little bit of sadness. Physical sensation. Tired. Lacking in energy. Feeling heat. And going red in the face. On edge. Prime for fight or flight type reactions. Then behaviour and action section. Initially, I was playful and chatty. I quickly stopped being fun and chatty. I became impatient. I broke the usual routine. I was mismatched with my child in both emotions and in terms of pace. And I wanted this pyjamas on yesterday. He wanted to just continue playing. Showed impatience and annoyance, but did not discuss or communicate this in a good way. Lack of patience triggered some pretty poor collaboration on my son's part. And me taking things personally been a little bit over-controlling as a parent. Sometimes hard to figure out who's the child and who's the adult in a situation like this. Been less supportive and helpful when reading. Clock-watching and trying to conclude what should have been, but was not, quality time. Trying to get, get it over and done with quickly. So once an event like that is drawn out, and I encourage you to try one yourself, it does get easier to identify what went wrong as well as what the triggers are. It's not as straightforward uh, for me to say that the bedtime banter was the trigger because there are multiple triggers there, including external triggers, like me talking with my wife about doing more and better reading with my son, through to time pressure, uh, to feeling like a failure, to tiredness, to aspects of the interactions that take place that can potentially push buttons in certain ways. So, so there's lots of information about triggers within a situation where you're already triggered. And perhaps you might consider having a go yourself to see if you can identify any more triggers to add to the list. So before you go calling social services and reporting me to the Bad Dad of the Year awards, let me tell you how things turned out. So the good news is that I managed to turn the incident around in the end. Of course I did. That's why I'm telling you. I'm brilliant, Dad, really. After his reading, and just before my reading of his chapter, he went for an extended visit to the toilet for a pee. And I caught myself in that moment of silence and managed to have a bit of a word with myself. I'd been writing about the 5P formulation and recording an earlier episode of this podcast and doing a load of family therapy all in the week leading up to this incident. And yet there I was oblivious and living in the moment with no self-reflection, no insight, no ability to take a step back and adopt a formulating stance from a position of curious uncertainty. All my talk just went out the window. So I quickly did all of that while he was having a, having a pee. And what came to mind? Uh, well, this was in a nutshell. I thought, 
about how confusing it must have been for him to experience fun time daddy early on and then suddenly I switched to being serious daddy who wants to get bedclothes on, reading done. So that might have been a bit of a jump for my little one to figure out. I remember the conversation with my wife about doing a better job at reading and I connected with the fact that I was tired and still had a load of work to do that evening. So when he came back from the toilet, I was a changed man. I managed to be patient, loving and fun, and we read his book together before I tucked him up tight and said goodnight. Just to add to increasing possibility that you think I might be a disaster of a parent, the following night's routine involved him saying, just as I was leaving his room, which is a time where he likes to try and say something that entices you back in so you can extend the bedtime process. But he said, Daddy, I want to spend all my time with you this weekend because I like spending all my time with you. Now, the cynic in me was jumping to the idea that this is a strategy to prolong my departure from the room at lights out time. And it's a good strategy, especially telling me that he likes spending time with me. I'm interested in hearing lots more about this from the mouth of a ridiculously cute six-year-old but afterwards I thought about two things. One was the fact that I've been doing a lot of work lately and I've not been spending as much quality time with him as I could have done. And thinking back to the shenanigans of the night before, where I thought he had some sort of kiddie vendetta against me, but it was him just wanting to spend some quality time with Dad. So I resolved to spend more quality time with him from that moment on. And as I left the room, I said to him, maybe we can watch, you could watch a little bit less TV this weekend. Instead, we can play lots of games and have fun together. I enjoyed his response because he said, maybe we could watch lots of TV together instead. And that was me, prepared to spend hours on YouTube watching other families play games and watch other kids unwrap squidgy toys and play with them. So a few points about the hot cross bun. So you should give yourself permission to guesstimate some of the thoughts and feelings and physical sensations you have at the time. Because it's not obvious, it's not always obvious anyway. And if the process is fast or automated when you're having problems, then much of the thinking happens outside of our awareness. The other thing to start thinking more about is physical sensations. It's not uncommon when talking about triggers for people to sometimes tell me that there were no triggers at all, that something just happened. And then on examination we find that physical symptoms or experiences were there just before, contributing in its own subtle way to the start of problems. Our bodies can be a great source of information. I can't for the life of me find the source of this, but I am certain that somewhere I read that the saying, my heart goes out to you, was originally, my bowel goes out to you. As many people thought way, way, way back in the past, that the feeling centre of the body was in the gut rather than the heart. Regardless of whether that's true or not, or a figment of my imagination, there's lots of evidence and research that tells us that thinking and feeling is a whole body event. Almost all of the body's serotonin, which is one of the happy drugs that the body produces, is, is made in the stomach. Those of us who've experienced nervous flutter when meeting someone new, or a dull pain when you've got too many things to do, or several trips to the toilet before job interviews, you'll, you'll know yourselves how our bodies can hold some of our emotions and tell us that we're feeling something, even when we don't register that in our brains. So unless you struggle because you pay too much attention to body sensations, for example, if you experience anxiety or panic attacks, then think about paying a little bit more attention to what your body is telling you. Sometimes a body can kind of be a good indicator of when we're starting to feel distress or starting to feel uncomfortable. 
can be an early warning signs that can help you to maybe adjust things a little bit. So pay attention to what your body is telling you. Okay, so the hot cross bun can be a handy one for developing one of your in-the-moment formulations. I hope you give it a go and find an incident from your recent past and just draw it out, the thoughts, the feelings and the behaviours. Sometimes a, a really good option can be focusing on comparing and contrasting the same events on two different occasions, to say on a good day versus a bad day. So we pick similar incidents that take place on, on a good day versus a bad day and draw out the thoughts, the feelings and the behaviours and do a bit of a compare and contrast. And that can be quite interesting to show show us just how powerful thoughts, feelings, physical sensations and interactions can be in the context of the development and maintenance of problems. So have a go at the hot cross bun and see if there's any value in it for you. Before finishing up, now that you've developed a, a list of triggers and potentially had a think about thoughts, feelings and behaviours in the moment when you experience difficulties or incidents, hopefully that maybe helped you to add a couple more triggers to the, the list. If your list of triggers is fairly limited, you could have a look at your problem list and, and identify triggers related to each specific problem. When thinking about each of those problems and the list and triggers that are related to it, think about your internal world, your relationship with yourself, your external world, your relationship with other people, and your day-to-day -day life, what you actually do day-to-day, -day, and see if you can identify any more triggers that way. The more triggers that you identify means the more opportunities we'll have later when it comes to developing ideas about how you might want to make some adjustments or improvements to make your life a little bit more comfortable. So the more triggers, the better. Okay, so thanks for listening today. In the next episode, we're going to focus in on the fourth of the five P's, which is perpetuating factors. So what maintains or keeps your problems going? Thanks very much for listening today, and hopefully you'll join me for the, the next session where we can continue with our formulation work together. Until then, take care of yourself. Hello everyone and welcome to episode four of the Thinking About Therapy podcast. This podcast is aimed at people who are interested in getting a little bit of insight into what the first few sessions of therapy is like with myself, or for those of you who are interested in developing your own psychological formulation. So in the first few episodes, we've looked into problems, we've looked into predisposing factors or what's contributed towards the problems developing. We've looked at triggers or things that kickstart problems in the moment. Today I'm going to be a little bit greedy by focusing on two of the five P's, the last two that are remaining. The first is protective factors, and that's another way of saying strengths, or things we do and experience that help us day to day. The other P, which we'll focus on, is perpetuating factors, or another way of saying this is maintaining factors. So if you're up for joining in, either by just listening, or if you're completing your own psychological formulation alongside me, then grab your pen and paper and we'll crack on with today's work. 
So were you and I to meet up today for therapy, whilst setting our agenda and adding in things like review and how your week has gone, thinking together about any homework tasks that you might have had um, and agreeing and discussing anything that you want to put on the things to do list today, I'd be asking us to focus in a little bit on what you do and experience when problems start to happen. I always start with the discussion about what you actually do when problems occur. What do you think and feel and do when problems are triggered? Are you the bastion of calm and do you hit the pause button, take a step back in the moment and weigh up your options? And do you connect with your current emotional state when somebody pushes your buttons, perhaps overriding an angry or unhelpful response with something a little bit more considered, rational or compassionate or forgiving towards others and yourself? Are you like most of us and you're fully immersed in the moment, a victim of habit and circumstance and not really consciously thinking about anything at all in particular? Reacting today as you've maybe reacted a hundred or a thousand times in the past. I'm aspiring towards the first option there, but seem to navigate towards the second far too often. But what about you? Let's spend a little bit of time now developing a list of things that you do and experience when problems emerge. So try doing what we talked about in the previous episodes when we were developing the other parts of your 5P formulation. Get together an exhaustive list of things that you do in response to and around the time problems happen. What do you think? What do you feel? And then what do you actually do at the times the problems start to emerge? And let's start off with the positives. What happens or what do you do or think or feel when problems emerge that you think are helpful and support you to, to get past the problem and to deal with it quite effectively? What actions do you and other people around you do uh, that are helpful? Pull a list together of helpful things that happen when problems arise. If we were in therapy together and you were struggling to remember or come up with some suggestions around the positive things that you do, I might be encouraging you to think about some recent examples where you managed to cope well or effectively deal with a problem when it came up. What happens on a good day when those problems are a little bit more manageable? If you're still struggling or racking your brain, then consider reviewing the problem and trigger sections of your formulation that we've come up with previously. You could go through the various different problems you have or the various different triggers that we've identified and, and see what, what sort of response do you usually make or have or how do you think or feel in this situation when, when those problems emerge. Again, Thinking back to previous episodes when we did develop a problem list, quite often I, I tend to cluster difficulties into three categories or collections of difficulties. If you remember from previous episodes, that includes problems or difficulties in the way we relate to ourselves, our relationship with ourselves, what we say and think and do and feel in relation to ourselves. Then the second cluster of problems is problems in our relationships with other people. And then the third one is in day-to-day -day life. So if you're not in the mood to go back over your problem list or, or think in too much detail about problems, then consider um, those three categories. Is there anything that you do in relation to or in response to difficulties or problems that you may have when you're interacting with or relating to yourself? Is there any uh, solutions or helpful things that you do? When you're confronted with problems related to other people and your relationship with them, your interactions with them. And then lastly, your day-to-day -day life. Is there any problems or difficulties in day-to-day life in your routine, your activities or your interactions that you think, actually, yeah, I respond quite well to that or I've had success recently dealing with a problem there. If, if you can think of any successes or recent uh, times where you managed a problem or a difficult situation quite well, uh, you responded a bit more positively in a way that's been helpful for you, then, then just jot it down, make a note of it and add it to the list. 
Okay, so now you've got a nice list, hopefully, of things that you do or that other people do or resources or strengths that you have and that help you cope a little bit more comfortably with problems and address them in day-to-day life. In the final episode, which is next time, we're going to talk a lot more about strategies or things that you can do to help. The things you already do that are helpful will play a pretty important role in that. So keep this list handy for next time. And if you remember any more in the meantime, in regards to helpful things that you do, then please add them into the list. So next up, I'm going to talk to you about uh, another list. I'm going to ask you to do a second list, if that's okay. And that's essentially a rerun of what we've just talked about there. But this time focusing on things that happen in response to problems that are pretty problematic. They're, They're not very helpful. So things that you do or say or think or feel that you think kind of add fuel to the flames that sort of make problems a little bit worse. So think about these things that you and other people do or say or think or feel that contributes towards maintaining or keeping the problems going. So why do some of these problems keep on happening? Is there anything in particular that jumps out at you? Anything that you can pinpoint to about yourself or other people or stuff that seems to keep happening that adds fuel to the flames? So think about jotting these down, identifying less helpful regular responses or experiences that you have. Is there anything about how you try to cope or interact or think about things that are in themselves a bit of a problem? Again, if you can write a list independently of things that you do or say or think or feel that you know contributes towards problems becoming worse, that'd be great. Just stick to listing them as we have done in the other episodes. If you're struggling to identify some things, then you could use the problem list and the, the triggers list to, to jog your memory for what you actually do that might be a little bit not helpful for you. Maybe adding to your woes or, or causing problems to get a little bit worse or causing problems to stick around for a little bit longer. Again, if you don't want to go through your problem list, the whole thing or your the, all of your triggers, um, like I said before, tend, I tend to cluster them into problems in interaction with ourselves, problems in our interactions or relationships with other people and then day to day life. So you could um, think about those three areas and see if there's anything that you do or think or feel or say or experience that can contribute towards problems getting worse. So in this part of your formulation, I'm usually paying close attention to coping strategies and responses to problems that can make sense in the short term, but cause or maintain problems over the longer term. So there's moments in therapy together where sometimes people have a sudden realization that they're, what they've been doing and they think has been helpful and supportive of themselves is actually contributing towards problems sticking around. It's not often that there's some big eureka moment where somebody has a sudden realization, oh my goodness, I thought that was really helpful. But there is sometimes, and, and that's a pretty important one to figure out, is there anything that you're doing at the moment when you experience problems that you actually think on some level this is quite helpful? But actually, when you think about it for a while or when you take a step back from it, you can sort of identify, oh, maybe there's a bit of a problem with that response. If you've got any of those that you can identify, then brilliant. Make make a note of them. Keep an eye on them. In this part of your formulation, I'm usually paying close attention to coping strategies and responses to problems that can make sense in the short term because or maintain problems over the longer term. Also at this point, I'm remaining curious and uncertain, and I'm thinking about more and less obvious secondary gains, sometimes tied up in there, but not very obvious. So by secondary gains, I mean less obvious benefits 
that may be kind of intertwined in amongst the responses that you have. So, for example, irritability or anger it might buy a person some much desired alone time or tiredness might support someone to avoid engaging in stressful activities. Uh, so sometimes we could take coping strategies or a person's responses to problems and do a bit of a pros and cons list to help us figure out the obvious as well as the hidden positives and negatives associated with how those problems have been dealt with. So try and finish writing the list if you can. I'm going to go on now in a second to describe a few common experiences that people sometimes talk about in therapy in relation to maintaining factors or things that keep problems going. So here we go. Here's a few common perpetuating or maintaining factors that often get mentioned during sessions. See if you've got them on your list or if they're relevant that maybe you add them to your list. Okay, so overthinking and introspection. Essentially spending too much time in your head, too much time thinking. And often that thinking happens at the worst possible times when your ability to think clearly or comfortably without the, the burden of feeling low in mood or of, of worrying is interfering. So quite often it can lead to rumination, which is kind of cycles or patterns of negative thinking, problematic thoughts, one after the other after the other. And it can kind of spiral and to some extent we can get lost in it a little bit. Other thing can be uncertainty about the self or becoming preoccupied with topics such as about what other people think, thinking biases. We can start to develop over the years patterns of thinking. I mean, our brains need to be able to make these mental shortcuts to take in all that information and make sense of the world. So it's not massively surprising that we would have sort of these mental shortcuts or biases. It's just that when somebody's had some tough times in their lives or when the, they've developed these biases sometimes that, you know, if we can sort of jump to conclusions quickly without evidence, all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking it has to be one or the other. It can't be anything in between. Or there can be confirmation bias, which is that you've got this opinion at the start and you're just looking for information and evidence just to prove that opinion and you kind of discard or don't even see or notice evidence or information that might actually disprove or, or go in the other direction. Hypervigilance to threat or judgment is another one that can be quite common. So can be heavily focused on uh, surveying your environment and trying to keep an eye on potential threats, whether it's people judging you or potential that they might hurt you in some way. And that, that can be a vicious cycle and it can lead to a sort of a bit of a difficult pattern in terms of your interactions can actually contribute towards the feared outcome. High self-criticism is another one. So saying nasty, undermining things to yourself that you'd never say to others. Uh, unfortunately, this one is one of the most underestimated maintainer of distress that I come across. A lot of people who are really self-critical quite often say, oh, yeah, but that's just who I am. Or if it wasn't for self-criticism, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning or I wouldn't be where I am today, which is pretty disappointing, distressing to hear really as an outsider, seeing that so many people are comfortable and accepting that they can live their lives with a bully in tow. Sleep problems is a common one. And that can be anything from not getting enough sleep to getting too much sleep through the night or through to having a reverse sleep-wake cycle where every time everyone else in the world is out and about doing their day-to-day -day business, uh, you're asleep and then vice versa. When everyone else goes to bed, you're up for the night. 
Uh, low confidence, so self-esteem is another one. If your confidence is low, then it can quite often contribute towards problems reoccurring, problems sticking around for longer and difficulties in that side of things. Excessive alcohol or drug use or eating to distract or cope on a temporary basis. There's lots of people out there who use substances to relax or to socialize or to interact. But it's also difficulties in relation to people needing substances instead of just wanting them. People becoming addicted, people, you know, using it to cope. So it's a mixed bag for a lot of people in terms of substances, whether that's alcohol or cannabis or, or other drugs. A lot of people who maybe smoke cannabis regularly will say, oh yeah, it's, it's very helpful and it's supportive of me relaxing, but at the same time acknowledge that there's times where, for example, it becomes problematic if they've smoked too much in terms of getting uncomfortable or feeling unsafe or paranoid around other people. It can cause problems when they run out because they're a bit on edge and they can't get the funds together to get it for a few days, or it can also be a big problem in the context of boredom. Smoking weed is very, very helpful in terms of alleviating boredom and when that's not around uh, boredom can be a, a, a suddenly a big problem for people who can't necessarily entertain or, or support themselves without the, the need to resort to substances. Avoidance, tolerating strong emotions and pain can be a difficult one. Communicating and interpersonal difficulties including relationship and intimacy and stability. Unresolved trauma, uh, difficulties from the past that continue to impact on your day-to-day -day life. Avoidance of people, places, activities, emotions or thoughts and memories. So avoidance is a big one. It comes in many, many forms. So it can be obvious type of avoidance from things like isolation to less obvious stuff. Like I mentioned earlier, using anger or substances to keep people at a distance or to keep stress at a distance. Avoidance is a pretty enticing strategy that tends to pause or delay distress. I mean, delaying the stress, even if it's in the knowledge that you're going to feel stressed out on a later date, it's kind of pretty enticing, isn't it, really? If you, especially if you're struggling to cope over the longer term. Unrelenting high standards of perfectionism. So many people have this perfectionist problem. It's not unusual for people with perfectionism-related difficulties to quickly discount perfectionism as a problem. Oh, I'm never, I never do things perfectly, or that's not me. But perfectionism can come in many guises, and it can involve many responses. So, for example, some people have a problem with perfectionism or unrelenting high standards, but the problem manifests in avoidance. So you avoid the point of judgment so much because it has to be just so, it has to be perfect or it's nothing. It's all or nothing. But perfectionism, along with self-criticism, are two strategies that are fantastic at keeping people feeling shit about themselves and having low confidence, self-esteem problems. And speaking of low confidence, self-esteem, that is one big maintainer, isn't it? Feeling like a failure a lot of the time, feeling unlovable or somehow unworthy. So, I mean, if you think about your brain as an information gathering machine, if you've, if you've programmed in sense that you're not worthy, that you're unlovable, that you're a failure, and you've got lots of thinking habits to back that up, then, you know, you're, you're processing millions of bits of information every second, and it's all getting churned up in a way that you're looking for evidence to prove that you're shit, to prove that you're not worthwhile, to prove that you're a failure. So it's a big, massive, impact for people if they've got significant challenges in, in this area. 
excessive alcohol or drug use or eating to distract or cope on a temporary basis. Um, and other avoidance strategies such as isolation, sleep problems, procrastination, things like that. Anger or aggression is a very good emotion. Anger gets a, gets a negative rap a lot of the time. It's powerful emotion. It's energizing emotion. It can be. And it can be pretty addictive, especially if we spend a lot of time feeling powerless and unable. But it's not great for helping with rational decision making or bonding with other people in the moment, is it? Concentration difficulties, stress and coping difficulties. Subjugation is another one that's not unusual. So it's kind of downgrading your own needs and putting other people first all of the time or almost all of the time. So when you need help or support or others to be interested in supporting and helping you, don't be surprised that they're not there because in a sense, your subjugation has trained them up to some degree to expect their feelings to matter most, to expect their needs to be addressed most and to get out of the habit of thinking of you as somebody who's got your own needs and your own wants. Reassurance seeking or over-dependence on others could be a maintaining factor. So repeatedly asking for reassurance and getting it from other people can be a short-term fix in a sense. But over the medium and longer term, it stops or gets in the way sometimes of you being able to reassure yourself. It can sometimes lead to a pattern of needing to experience reassurance more regularly from other people and getting out of the habit or, or unlearning, I suppose, that important ability of being able to reassure yourself. Relationship difficulties can be a common one, including loneliness, rejection, abandonment or abuse fears, worry that other people are going to hurt you. And these can manifest in, in many different ways within a relationship or without if you're avoidant of relationships. Linked to relationships as well uh, with other people, communication problems as getting your points across or sharing enough about yourself that people know how to support you or to get your point across in terms of, you know, if you're in an emotional, difficult place that you can share that with people and get appropriate support. So when talking about maintaining factors, it can be challenging or even actually initially insulting for some people. So the knowledge or, or would I go so far as to say the fact that you do and say or think and feel things that contribute towards your problems and their impact. It's, it's complicated news, not straightforward. If people come to therapy and they've had years and years of feeling victimized or hurt or traumatic experiences or difficulties, then to sit with me and have a conversation about, oh, some of the things that you do might actually contribute towards your problems. You know, I can understand why that must be a very, very difficult thing to experience sometimes if it's not introduced properly. On reflection of this session, I've probably not done a great job at introducing it properly but just to reassure you in a sense we're, we live in a world of, of relationships we live in a world of interactions and sometimes when we experience difficulties the things that we think and feel and do contribute towards the outcome my hope is to flip that from a feeling, oh gosh, is this bloody therapist blaming me for all of this crappy stuff that's happened to me? And I hope we can flip that into, okay, right, so I've got some degree of control or power over my destiny and, and what happens in situations. Because that, that's the primary thing, really, is that we can uh, support people, really, just to start to feel a little bit more control, empowered, and that you've got choices, you've got an ability to effect change and to, to introduce things into your life that actually contribute towards things becoming a little bit more comfortable. So there are a few, a few perpetuating or maintaining factors and I hope you managed to identify um, a few that are personally relevant ones for yourself and your own formulation. 
Next up in the last episode, we'll discuss possible interventions or strategies you might decide to use in order to turn your formulation into something that's a bit more useful in, in practical terms. So up until now, I've been pretty relaxed about dishing out homework tasks. But by now, if you've been busy developing your own formulation alongside me, then you should have a nice comprehensive formulation that details a list of problems, ideas about where some or all of the problems have originated. You'll have a list of triggers, an example of things or people or events that push your buttons or cause you difficulties in the moment. And you'll have a list of things you do or think or feel or strengths or resources or people that help or hinder in relation to problems. It can be scary stuff having all this information in one place, but I highly recommend if you're up for it, uh, pulling it all together, writing it out onto a nice, neat piece of paper. I tend to use a big piece of A3 paper, actually, when I'm working with people and then hand that out at the end of, of the session. If you feel comfortable doing it, but that's only if you feel comfortable, then consider writing out your formulation. Put your strengths, focus, self-compassionate thinking cap on. And then before next week's session, highlight or underline the problems and triggers and maintaining factors that you want to invest efforts in adjusting. So, so you may want to make a bit of a plan around certain areas in the formulation. So, oh, yeah, I'd like to change that or I'd like to tweak that or I'd like to talk more about what I could do there to improve things. Other things you might underline thinking, gosh, I could do with talking about that a little bit more with a therapist, whether that's difficulties from your past or actually particulars in your formulation that you think, oh, I just need another person to bash that out, think about it a little bit more with them. But if you have a think about it in the week between now and next time, um, often and what I'd ask people to come back into the next therapy session with is, is that formulation with some stuff underlined that they think, yeah, I'd like more conversation around that bit. I'd like to make a plan around that bit. I know that bit's a problem, but I don't want to do anything. And I disagree with you that that's a problem and I'm going to keep on doing it. And then we kind of talk through, you know, try and turn the formulation into a useful route map for us to pick specific interventions that we can focus on together. So thanks for joining in today uh, and I look forward to spending some more time with you during our next episode. Take care.